Good morning once again, brothers and sisters. Let us open God's Word together this morning. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. And as you were doing so, please stand for the reading of God's Holy Word. Psalm 2. It is not just a great privilege, brothers and sisters, but a great responsibility for you and I to hear the reading and preaching of God's Word. And so let us consider it that this morning, both a privilege and a responsibility. I want to read in your hearings the entirety of the second psalm, and so I will begin reading in verse 1. Let us give our attention now to the Word of the true and living God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings... Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please take your seats, brothers and sisters. One question humanity has asked and no doubt will continue to ask is this question right here. Who is in charge? Who's really in charge? We should say at the front end in a lot of ways, this is the question that plagued our first parents in the garden and it is an ongoing question today. When nations and kingdoms are toppled, when empires crumble, brothers and sisters, when the lives that you and I have created take the Humpty Dumpty fall, we are all tempted in those moments to ask, well, who is in charge? And Psalm 2 answers such a question. We are quickly approaching the end of our brief little sermon series through the Psalms. And as we near the end, we will come this morning and take up what are referred to as Psalms of Enthronement. And these are Psalms, brothers and sisters, that describe the coming rule of a king. 
We might think in terms of ancient Israel of a, of a David or a Solomon. And these psalms, they would be sung as the king ascended to his throne and the, and the crown was put upon his head and he was declared the king of the land. In our context today, we might actually think of these psalms more sort of in the vein of a national anthem. This is what the people of God would, would rally around and, and would sing as their new king was given the massive responsibility of protecting and providing for his people. And I say massive responsibility because one of the, the truths that you find throughout the Old Testament in particular is that so goes the king, so goes the people. Now, lest there be any doubt, this psalm, like all the psalms, and really all the, the Bible for that matter, this psalm is about Christ. It finds its fulfillment in Him. This is a, a psalm, a song. Remember, these are, these are meant to be sung. This is a song about who Christ is and what Christ does. We know this for several reasons. For starters, as I've already mentioned, all of Scripture is about Christ. Christ is the center. Christ is the focal point. The Lord Jesus said this himself in John 5.39. Chiding the religious leaders, Christ said, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. So what Christ says is that Scripture, including this psalm, it bears witness about Him. And so to miss that is to miss everything. The Bible is about Jesus. That's the point. You also have the Messianic language. If you look at verse 2, we are told the kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. And that word anointed, that is where you and I get the word Messiah. So church, this psalm speaks about the Messiah or the Christ. Just, just real quick, Messiah comes from Hebrew, Christ from Greek, but but, but they're both used synonymously. If that wasn't enough, down in verse 7, you have allusions to the Davidic covenant. We read, The Lord said to me, You are my son. And that language, church, it echoes language from 2 Samuel 7 in the Davidic covenant. For example, in 2 Samuel 7, 14, God makes this promise to David. He says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And as we know from the New Testament, the, the Messiah, the Christ figure who was to come, he was going to be a son of David. And of course, as you know, the New Testament goes to great lengths to inform us that Jesus is, in fact, this greater son of David, the one in whom all the Davidic promises find their fulfillment. So the son here in verse 7 is the son of God. It's the Lord Jesus. Now, speaking of the New Testament, we also have the apostles' inspired interpretation of Psalm 2 which also points to Jesus. Consider 
In Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, Luke not only says that David is the author of this psalm, but he also says that this psalm was fulfilled when the Romans and the the religious leaders and, and they all gathered together against Jesus Christ and crucified him. And that event, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, in Acts chapter 4, Psalm 2 is used as the proof text. In Matthew's gospel, two times, once at Christ's baptism and then once more at the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father speaks from heaven these words, This is my beloved Son. And this is, again, no doubt alluding to verse 7 of Psalm 2. Speaking of verse 7 of Psalm 2, in the book of Acts, Paul specifically cites Psalm 2, saying, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And according to Paul, that refers to Christ and how Christ was enthroned in heaven upon his resurrection and ascension. The author to the letter of the Hebrews says something similar. He too quotes Psalm 2-7, and he does so in the context of extolling the wonders and the excellencies of Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, the overwhelming evidence then is this. When we are talking this morning about Psalm 2, what or who we are talking about is really Jesus. And according to Psalm 2, And the New Testament's interpretation of it, Christ is king. And Christ was enthroned as king following his resurrection as he ascended back to heaven where he currently sits right now in these very moments on David's throne at God's right hand, ruling and reigning over all the nations. So with that in mind we need not guess about how to understand this psalm. Brothers and sisters, we have been given the spectacles of the New Testament. And to not wear them when reading this psalm will only cause us to squint and to not see all that is there. Or to switch metaphors, the New Testament gives us hearing aids. And with them, we will hear this morning four sounds, four voices. Here's what we're going to hear. You're going to hear the voice of the world, the voice of the Father, the voice of the Son, and the voice of warning. Let's begin where the psalm does with the first voice, the voice of the world. Zoom out for a brief moment. Look again at verses 1, 2, and 3. When you, when you look at those first couple of verses of this psalm, what do you hear? Well, in a word, you hear of rebellion. And David asks, well, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. This, this is utter rebellion. 
And don't miss the fact that that four terms here that David employs, two in verse 1 and two in verse 2. You have in verse 1, nations and peoples. In verse 2, you have kings and rulers. And what I want you to see is that in each of those cases, those are all plural nouns. So the point is, it's not just one nation or one ruler who is in rebellion. No, all the nations have joined together and put their hands as one to defeat this enemy. Who is the enemy, you ask? Verse 2 answers, They have joined together against the Lord and against His anointed. Church, Mark my words, the world hates God. The world hates Christ. It is absolutely true. If all the nations of the world could name all of their nuclear weapons at God and somehow destroy Him, you have to know that they would. And they would do so without any hesitation. They would gladly push that button. And the world would do that because residing deep in their hearts is only a burning hatred for God and for the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see how nefarious and perverse and insidious this hatred is by just observing some of the language of the psalm. The nations rage in verse 1. The peoples are plotting, we are told, the end of verse 1. Verse 2, really, there's no other way to describe it. It it describes something of a conspiracy, a mutiny of sorts, doesn't it? We're told that the rulers have taken counsel together. They've done so against the Lord and against His Christ. There has been an alliance formed. This is a NATO, it's an EU, it's it's allies and co-belligerents, and they have all joined forces. What have they conspired to do? Verse 3 leaves little to the imagination. What do the, the raging and plotting nations say? Let us burst their bonds apart. Their being God and His anointed. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. To cut to the chase, what do these raging nations want? They want to be free. But more than free, they want to be sovereign. They want to be their own king. Beloved, in a lot of ways, they want to be their own God. They they don't want the weight of God's law pushing them down. They don't want Christ to rule over them. They don't want to be accountable. They don't want to be told what to do. They want to be a law unto themselves. They don't want to be told what a man or woman is. They don't want to be told what marriage is, what family is, what love is, what truth is. They're not interested in what God says about righteousness or justice or equity. They have all of their own opinions when it comes to truth and progress and what is supposedly good for humanity. And all of it, 
Every syllable is antithetical to Christ. So what do the nations want to do? What are they plotting to do? Well, they long to pull Christ down from his throne, to drag him to hell, to throw the lid over it, to lock it, and to ascend to where he himself once sat. The problem, of course, at least for the rebellious world, is that this is all in vain. Each and every exercise here is an exercise of futility. They are like a two-year-old pounding his little fists and stomping on the ground with his tiny little feet, demanding that he be the center of the world. Just as little Johnny is throwing an epic temper tantrum at Walmart, so the world is throwing an epic temper tantrum. But the evil nations, the wicked rulers, it is abundantly clear they will not prevail. They will not get their way despite all of the, the rage, despite all of the energy that is expended in verses 1 through 3. They will ultimately be undone by the Lord Jesus Christ. Picture for a moment a man holding a dog on the leash. And this dog, it is picture a 200-pound mastiff. And like that dog, the evil nations are, are jerking and, and trying to break free. My wife and I have this running joke. Whenever we go somewhere, we never see people walking dogs. We see dogs walking people. It's amazing. And you know what? That 200-pound mastiff, he will break free from that little 105-pound girl that's holding him on a leash if he so desires but not so for the nations. Not so for the world. Why? Because in reality, though they think they are like mastiffs, they are actually nothing but little chihuahuas. It's true, they, they yip nonstop like all worthless dogs do. And they, they nibble at the ankle, but they can do nothing more. Like this tiny chihuahua, they're all bark, they're no bite. For all the energy that that little dog expends, it will not break away from the leash, and neither will these break away from Christ. They can't. And that is because Christ is their king, whether they want him to be or not. Now, to be fair, this is really the story of human history writ large, isn't it? In a lot of ways, humanity's story is, at least from Genesis 3 on, a story of rebellion. It began all the way back in the garden with Adam and Eve, and it unfortunately continues today. We see it, do we not, in the District of Columbia. It takes place a couple of hours west from here at Olympia's Capitol Building. It's present even at our local mayor's office, and you know what? This same rebellion resides even in our own hearts. James Johnston refers to this as suburban rebellion. He says this, So many go to school, raise their kids, and pay their taxes without the slightest thought of following Jesus Christ. This, Johnston concludes, is suburban rebellion. 
And I will grant to you, brothers and sisters, it's not as perceptible. And that's because, at least in our area, it's got this thin veneer of republicanism that is covering it. But any and all who refuse to bow the knee and recognize Christ's lordship and follow him, they are in a state of utter rebellion, no matter how tame they might appear. Sure, that 200-pound mastiff looks like it is in more rebellion than the two-pound chihuahua. But they are both in utter defiance to their owner. So hear this, church. The voice of the world is loud. It's a cacophony of clamor, just this relentless lusting after power. But I want you to notice... What is the sound of the world met with? It's met with laughter, isn't it? With derision, with scoffing. Verse 4 reads, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Notice, brothers and sisters, God is not alarmed here. He's not worried by the machinations of the world. You will look in vain for any wringing of the hands in Psalm 2. God doesn't immediately get on the horn and call for backup. Neither does he retreat to his barracks for safety. Far from it. While the voice from earth is an obnoxious temper tantrum, the halls of heaven are filled with the mocking sound of God chuckling at his enemies. Let's be real, this isn't God's first rodeo, is it? Many a times the world has sought to destroy God and his Christ. Satan tried this in the garden. Pharaoh made his attempt, as did Haman. Herod slaughtered a whole village of little children attempting to snuff out the Christ child. The religious leaders, they took their best shot when they crucified the Lord of glory. Even Paul, before he was converted, tried to eradicate the church. The Roman empires who followed Paul, they one-upped him, that is no doubt. And yet, all to no avail. So as if to drown out the sound of the obnoxious and yipping chihuahuas, The Father speaks. And notice the way that He speaks. Verse 5, Then He, that is God, will speak to them, the world in rebellion to Him, and He will speak to them, listen to this language, in His wrath. He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury. Saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. Notice that here you get no picture that is so prevalent in evangelicalism of of an old sort of Santa Claus looking God with a big beard. God says that he will speak in his wrath and he will terrify them in his fury. As I mentioned at the front of this psalm, the the king that is spoken of here is not some mere earthly king. This isn't Rehoboam or someone like that. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is king. This is what the apostles teach us. 
And Christ, or to use the language of verse 2, this anointed one, he is not just king or lord, but he is, Revelation 19, 16, the king of kings and the lord of lords. That's the connection. This is why, brothers and sisters, the Father can so confidently mock his enemies. He can so confidently mock the rebellious world because he has installed a cosmic king over these rebellious nations. And this cosmic king is none other than his own son. And Christ will subdue his enemies. Let's be clear. Christ is the cosmic king, and as king, he demands the allegiance of these rebel nations. They owe him homage. And Christ will settle for nothing less. Now, speaking of Christ, it is at this point in the psalm when we hear a different sound. In the first couple of verses, you hear the world complain, and and then in the middle there, you hear the Father announce. Now we will hear from Christ himself. That's what verses 7, 8, and 9 are, brothers and sisters. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. So when you read in here, I or me or you or your, it's referring to Christ. For example, in verse 7, we hear, I will tell of the decree. Well, the I is Christ. And what Christ is going to reveal is what verse 7 calls a decree. Now that word decree, it comes from a root meaning to inscribe. So a decree here is talking about something that is permanent. Something that is written in stone, if you like. You, You can't erase it. It's going to happen. Consider it done. That's the flavor. So as we hear... From the voice of the Son, what is revealed to us? Well, first, take notice of his person. In verse 2, he is the anointed one. Again, the Messiah or the Christ. Then, over in verse 6, he is referred to as God's king. Then, down in verse 7, we are told, you are my son. So who is this figure then? What are we doing here? Well, if you put all the puzzle pieces together from this psalm, here is what you find. He is the anointed, he's the Messiah, he's the anointed king of the world who is God's son. That's who this person is. This is what the psalm is calling us to to sing in and to rejoice over. The anointed king of the world who is God's only son. And this, brothers and sisters, is all together glorious. It's glorious because I think normally when we tend to think of Christ being God's Son, I think our instinct is to think, well, this is making a statement about His essence or His nature. In other words, He is the Son of God and therefore He is divine. In other words, Son of God is speaking about His his deity. And don't misunderstand me. That's all true. That's a hill we die on. I'm not suggesting otherwise. 
What I do want to suggest to you this morning, though, is that Psalm 2 is not saying less than that, but more than that. Here's why. The Scriptures reveal to us that Adam was God's son. And Adam was made, created by God, to be the king of the world, to rule over it and subdue it. We remember Genesis 1, don't we? But what happened to this first king of the world? Well, he succumbed to the temptation of the serpent, which, as you know, cast all of us into despair and death. Well, then a little bit later in redemptive history, God adopts Israel and makes Israel his son. This is what Exodus 4.22 says. Israel was God's firstborn son. But of course, like Adam before him, Israel also failed. He too proved to be a rebellious son. Like Adam in the garden, so was Israel in the wilderness. They both worshipped false gods, and neither were faithful to the Lord of the covenant. So here's the point. From beginning to end, God's sons have failed. They haven't obeyed. They haven't walked in faithfulness. They have been altogether unrighteous. And their sin, both Adam and Israel, it has only brought disaster and darkness and death to us and to our world. This is the testimony of the Old Testament. So what does God do? Well, as I'm prone to say, God does for us what we could never do for ourselves. He actually sends his own son, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, if you like. God's son comes. And the point of Scripture is that Christ will succeed where both Adam and Israel have failed. Because unlike Adam and Israel, Christ will walk in utter holiness and righteousness. Christ will actually merit righteousness. He will, if you like, he will earn heaven through his perfection. By doing so, he will kill death. He will destroy sin. He will crush the skull of the serpent. He will open up the door to paradise for us. And he will redeem us from the tyranny of hell. Brothers and sisters, that's what our king has done. And and so we don't miss the forest for the trees. That's why after his perfect life before the law of God, and after his brutal sin-bearing death on the cross, and after his victorious life-giving resurrection, what happens? Christ ascends back into glory, but the scriptures are clear not to stand now, but to do what? To sit. To sit because his work is done. Through his one self-sacrifice, Christ has brought a decisive victory over his enemies. And you know what? His enemies are our enemies, church. So I wonder then, what is the king's reward for all his work? 
Well, as we continue to listen to his voice, note second, his possession now. His possession. Verse 8 says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your, that, that is Christ, I will make the nations Christ's heritage, and the ends of the earth Christ's possession. What has the Father given to the Son for all of His work? And the answer is nothing less than the world. That is His reward. That is Christ's inheritance, beloved. Look around you. It is all of creation. I trust as your affections are stirred and your heart warmed, be sure not to miss the rich irony. Because in verse 1, the nations are utterly raging. They're doing everything they can to break away from the rule of God. But by the time you get to verse 8, these same nations, they are Christ's inheritance. He owns them. They are His. They belong to Him. They exist to serve Him. Abraham Kuyper once said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry out, Mine. And Kuyper is right on. It is all his. Every nation, every border, every capital, every king, it has all been given to him. It's not just brothers and sisters, that the church is Christ's possession, though that's true. All the nations belong to the Lord Jesus. Still listening to the voice of Christ, hear finally now of his power. His power is put on display in verse 9, and verse 9 is haunting, at least For the king's enemies. You shall, again, speaking of Christ, Christ shall break them, that that is the rebel nations, with a rod of iron and dash them, the rebel nations, in pieces like a potter's vessel. Do, Do you hear the power, brothers and sisters of King Jesus? Sure, the nations have tanks and missiles, armies and nukes. They have their alliances and their backroom back room meetings, but Christ will destroy them. It, it is as if we were comparing a glow stick to the sun. Christ is infinitely more powerful than all the nations of this world. And by His power, He will overwhelm them and consume them. This glorious song of triumph does not end yet. With all the noises that we have heard, there is still yet one voice that you and I must lend our ear to. It's a voice that must be heard, and not just heard, but heeded. And I say that because it raises its voice, and it sings. It sings of both promise and panic, delight and dread. Wonder and warning. Hear first the warning. 
Beginning in verse 10, now therefore, in light of all of this, in light of who Christ is, who this king is, in light of the fact that he owns all the nations, in light of the fact of his power, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12 adds, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Catch this, brothers and sisters. These same kings and rulers up in verse 2, those who were shaking their fists at the sky in anger, these same rulers, they are now warned. They are warned, you have provoked the wrath, not just of the king, but of your king. Instead of serving Christ with resentment and disdain, the kings are warned. Christ must be served with fear and with trembling. They must, verse 12, kiss the son. That is to say, they must pay him respect and honor. If not, if they refuse to do so, we are told that Christ will unleash his wrath and these unfaithful rulers will learn very quickly how it is foolish and futile to fight against King Jesus. But I would have you to see, brothers and sisters, that that is not all. The haunting warning is only outmatched by its happy wonder. The end of verse 12, the the end of the psalm, what does it announce? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So so we're not going to blunt this. Yes, Christ's foes will be destroyed. That's true. But his friends will be delivered. Those who refuse to bow and kiss the king, yes, they will be shattered. Like like taking a, a cheap ashtray from the 80s and throwing it down, and it's a million pieces. That is what will happen to the rebels. But those who are his followers, those who are his loyal subjects, they will be spared. It's the promise of verse 12, isn't it? While the judgment of the king looms large on his enemies, the joy of the king rests upon those who repent. This really is the glory of the good news. And the glory is this. Even the king's foes can be made his friends. This is the wonder of verse 12. This is the wonder of all of it, isn't it? Verse 12 does not, I repeat, does not read, blessed are a few who take refuge in him, or a handful, or some. No, church, blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is, at the end of the psalm, a psalm about the enthronement of King Jesus over all the world and all his power. Now, you better be careful not to anger him. This psalm ends with a wide-open invitation. Even those who have plotted against King Jesus, even the fiercest of enemies and traitors, 
he welcomes even them to himself in his grace. They just must bow the knee. Sure, they might have spent their lives shaking the fist. But Christ says, if you would but bow the knee, you would find refuge in me. And of course, this is what the king offers even today. And we can go so far as to say that he offers it not just to kings and and presidents and prime ministers, but to all who would hear his voice. That includes you, my friend. King Jesus offers rebel sinners pardon. Foes like you and I, we become his friends by the grace of his gospel. Consider this, by the blood of his cross, Christ holds out his hands to redeem. He holds out his hands to offer mercy and forgiveness to those who have rebelled against him and his crown. He offers this to all of us today. The very hands that are extended to you, your king's hands, they have holes in them demonstrating the cross he endured to make his foes his friends. What all of this means then is that in a lot of ways, the last voice that we hear in this psalm, verses 10, 11, and 12, it does two things. It speaks on the one hand of a serious warning and on the other, a gracious invitation. The warning Give Christ not the kiss of Judas. For such rebellion and treachery will only result in your utter demise. The invitation? Instead of giving Christ the kiss of Judas, give him the kiss of love and affection in which he delights. Beloved, Christ is king. Christ is king right now. Psalm 2 is not speaking about some future event thousands of years ahead of us. No, right now, Christ is king. He was enthroned as king following his resurrection and ascension. That is why we confess no king but Christ. And that is a reality. A reality not just for me or for you or for this congregation, But that is a reality as well for those in Olympia and in D.C. and all over the world. Let's be very clear about this, even though it might make us a wee bit uncomfortable. You cannot read Psalm 2 and come away with middle ground. When it comes to King Jesus and how we respond to him, it is either reverence or rage. That is it. And so, brothers and sisters, if you have received his rule over you, then rest in him, for you have a king who delights in you. Despite your sin, despite your rebellion, you have a king who truly delights in you. Rejoice in this. Rest in him. 
But if you are a rebel, then you must repent. You must bow the knee. You must kiss the Son. And my friends, just as this psalm isn't referring to some event thousands of years from now, neither is Christ's call of you to repent is something that is in the distant future. Christ says, today is the day of salvation. If you are a rebel to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you must bow the knee today. Bow the knee today and know that Christ will receive you, welcome you, pardon you, and gift you his righteousness and eternal life. For the king delights to save his people. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you that our world is not left uh, to those in Washington. We thank you that our world is not ultimately ruled by mere men, but by the God-man, by your Son and our Savior. We thank you that he has served us well, that he has redeemed us, and that he is working all things uh, according to his pleasure. We thank you that we can trust him, that we can rest in him, that we have refuge in him. And we pray uh, for any of those in our midst this morning, young or old alike, who have not yet bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus, that your spirit might compel them to do that even in these moments, that they would find Christ uh, to be a perfect Savior. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus and pray that he would get all the glory. God's people said, Amen.